You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Before I begin this week's episode, again, I am going to play a promo for you guys. This is the podcast called Murder and Such with your hosts, Hunter and Haley. Take a listen. My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. At Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. These guys are really pretty funny, so if you're into the true crime and comedy scene, you cannot miss out on this podcast. They have really great and interesting topics, so I highly suggest you go check them out. Now, let's begin today's episode. Vietnam, officially known as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, is a rather long and thin country located in Southeast Asia or on the eastern end of the Indochina Peninsula. To the north of Vietnam is China, and to the east is Laos and Cambodia. Vietnam's population as of recent is around 95 million, and is the 14th most populous country in the world. Vietnam is divided into 58 provinces, and the capital city is Hanoi, a city in northern Vietnam. But the southern city of Ho Chi Minh has a larger population. FYI, Ho Chi Minh was also formerly known as Saigon. Vietnam's official language is Vietnamese and is also a multi-ethnic country with over 50 diverse groups that all have their own languages, cultures, and beliefs. Religion-wise, around three-fourths of Vietnam's population either believe in their folk religion or are not really religious, while some others follow religions like Buddhism, Christianity, or other local Vietnamese religions. Vietnam's history, like many other Southeast Asian countries, can also be traced back to the early Paleolithic Age. It should be noted that there is an area around North Vietnam and Southern China that kind of go back and forth between the two nations for years. The first Vietnamese state, the Hongbang Dynasty, began around 2800 BCE, this state was defeated in 257 BCE, which then formed the state of Ao Lak, which included the Lak Viet and the Ao Viet. The Lak Viet is basically a group of tribes that inhabited modern-day southern China and northern Vietnam, and Ao Viet is a group of tribes that inhabited the modern-day mountainous areas of northeast Vietnam. The state of Ao Lak did not last very long and was soon taken over by a Chinese general. Eventually, this new state called Nanyue was incorporated into the Chinese Han Dynasty in 111 BCE. From this day on, northern Vietnam was pretty much under China's rule for the next 1,000 years with some attempts to gain independence. It wasn't until the year 938 
that the Chinese army was finally defeated and Vietnam gained independence from China after an entire millennium. Vietnam was called Dai Viet at that time, and the country experienced some great times under the Li and Tran dynasties. China at one point did try to intervene again, but it was unsuccessful. Let Loi re-established the nation's independence and founded the Lei dynasty. For many centuries, Dai Viet expanded southward, as in the southern areas that is modern-day Vietnam. I've said this before, and here I go again. No Asian nation's history is complete without some sort of Western invasion or colonization. In comes the French military in 1859 and started taking over southern Vietnam, and by 1884, the entire Vietnam was under French rule. The French mostly were concerned with growing tobacco, tea, and coffee, and to export these goods, disregarding the population's need for their rights. Not surprisingly, a lot of people were against the French colonization, and the Can Vong movement tried to push the French out of Vietnam. When the Japanese arrived during World War II, they went ahead and took over because that's what they did. Of course, there is always Japan. Japan did not treat the country any better either, mostly using their resources to aid the ongoing war. Once World War II ended, Japan left and France tried to take over once again, but Vietnam resisted. To make a long story short, Viet Minh, a communist and nationalist liberation movement, tried to gain independence from the French, resulting in the First Indochina War. The French were defeated in 1954, and French Indochina was officially game over under the Geneva Accords of 1954. This resulted in three separate countries, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Vietnam was temporarily divided into Communist North and the Republic South, and the Vietnam War happened. The North was trying to establish a communist rule, while the South was anti-communist. I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with this war, especially if you're American, because of how heavily the U.S. was involved later on. The war ended and the North won, forming the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. The death toll was really high, as in millions high. Moving on to more relatable topics, Vietnam is considered highly biodiverse, home to many named and unnamed species. It's a great place to visit if you want to experience a unique ecology and environment. Vietnam was once a predominantly agricultural society, but over the years it has changed a lot. Vietnam's economy and GDP is growing as we speak. Their economy is predicted to become the 21st largest by 2025, and also could surpass that of Norway, Singapore, and Portugal by 2050. I have visited Ho Chi Minh quite a few times, and it is definitely modern and not at all what you would expect. There is something for everyone there, so I would encourage you all to visit. So, although this week's true crime destination is Vietnam, this actual case will not take place in Vietnam. I initially wanted to cover a case of a female serial killer, but like many other topics I want to cover, not enough info. So while I was researching, I came across this case and it really intrigued me. This happened in the United States, but it involved the Vietnamese community. Between the years 1981 to 1990, 
five Vietnamese journalists would be assassinated, possibly for their political views and stance. Although there will be five victims in this episode, there were plenty more victims. Some survived, some didn't. Certain groups have claimed responsibility, but to this day, no one has ever been charged, and all five murders are still unsolved. Is it because there was not enough evidence? Or there was a cover-up? Or a conspiracy? Or maybe something else? Some information from this case will come from the documentary called Terror in Little Saigon, which you can find on YouTube. I'm obviously no authority over this matter, so if you hear conflicting information, please let me know and I will very happily correct myself. But hey, before I continue, guess what? I have a surprise secret guest on today's episode. The first person speaking on my podcast who isn't actually me. I reached out to her to see if she had any information or insight on this case, as two of these murders took place in her state, she lives near Garden Grove, a.k.a. Little Saigon, and, oh, she is also half Vietnamese. She very, very kindly offered to research and record parts for me, so here she is. I want to first say thank you to your lovely host, Jessica, for reaching out to me about this story. And also, a thank you to all of you who listen to her fantastic show. I hope I'm able to do all of you justice. I'm Roseanne, and I host the California Dreaming Podcast, a show that focuses on crime stories that have taken place in California or have a California connection. And the reason I'm here today is for two reasons. One, a portion of Jessica's story happened to have taken place in California. And the other is the story involves Vietnamese journalists who immigrated to the United States. And it just so happens that my mother's side of the family are also Vietnamese immigrants. And despite the fact that I'm only half, and my daughter even less than that, our lives are very much infused in the rich Vietnamese culture in and around Southern California. With that being said, let's get started here. This is a story about the assassination of five Vietnamese journalists. I'm going to tell you about two of them, the two that were killed here in California, Lam Dung Trong and Pham Van Tap. Let's start with Lam, as he was the first in San Francisco, California. He was a social worker, but he also operated a Vietnamese language periodical called Kai Ding Lang, which means the Vietnamese temple. He would print these publications and mail them out to Vietnamese immigrants across the United States. It was widely known that Lam was a left-wing journalist. He was a sympathizer of the communist Hanoi government. He had harsh criticisms of the war in Vietnam, and his publication reflected that, as he would frequently reprint articles from the Vietnamese Communist Party newspaper, and he collected poetry penned by Ho Chi Minh, who was the Vietnamese communist leader the chairman and the first secretary of the Workers' Party of Vietnam, former prime minister and president of North Vietnam, and founder of the Viet Cong during the Vietnam War. And for many Vietnamese Americans, those who managed to escape the communist regime that swept across Vietnam when the war ended, this is a deeply contentious and hugely unpopular set of beliefs for Lam to have had. So, 
On the morning of July 21, 1981, Lamb was shot and killed by an assassin's bullet as he strolled just outside his San Francisco apartment. The bullet ripped straight through his pulmonary artery, slightly above his heart. Responsibility for Lamb's assassination was claimed by an anti-communism group called the Vietnamese Organization to Exterminate Communists and Restore the Nation. However, the FBI, during the course of their investigations into the killings, would hypothesize that this was actually a cover name for the real group behind it, the National United Front for the Liberation of Vietnam, or just the Front for short. And it would be Lamb's leftist material that he was publishing that would be the motive behind his killing. The third in the series of assassinations was Pham Van Tap, but he was also known by the name Tu Diep Hoa. But for purposes of this story, we will refer to him as Pham. He worked for the publication My, an entertainment magazine, as an editor, and he also worked in advertising. The magazine primarily ran ads for two or three Canadian companies that offered services such as cash transfers and travel services to Vietnam. And such services are very much frowned upon by the anti-communist Vietnamese communities across the United States. On the morning of August 9, 1987, Pham was asleep in his office in the city of Garden Grove, California, which is the epicenter of Little Saigon in Orange County, when suddenly the building burst into flames. Pham, unable to escape, and heard screaming inside the building by passers-by, was overcome and died of smoke inhalation. The investigation would later determine that the fire was indeed arson, that the building had been doused in gasoline then ignited. Not only that, investigators concluded that the same group responsible for Lamb's death, the Vietnamese Organization to Exterminate Communists and Restore the Nation, was also responsible for this arson and murder. The Vietnamese American media did receive a communique that came in the form of a letter that originated in San Jose, California that was mailed to two Vietnamese newspapers in Garden Grove explaining that the group was responsible and that the motive for Pham's killing was because of his willingness to be paid to run those ads for money and travel services to Vietnam, that he was an individual who supported the communists and so were those companies buying those ads. These two killings that took place in California that I've told you about were not the only incidents of violence in California involving Vietnamese immigrants thought to be communist supporters. But there was a big, huge problem hindering the investigation. The group that was claiming responsibility for the assassinations and fires it was like chasing a ghost. Their clandestine nature made it difficult and frustrating for law enforcement to locate and identify the group. All they knew is that this group was calling themselves by a number of different names, complicating things even more. They sent communiques to various media outlets claiming responsibility by eradicating the agents of the Vietnamese communists and contributing to the overthrow of the barbarous and inhumane regime in Vietnam. Just about everything else about this group or groups, whatever the case may be, is vague and ambiguous, 
creating a tremendous obstacle in identifying those responsible. As a matter of fact, law enforcement in cities affected by these attacks and killings were not even certain if these organizations truly existed, much less how many people may be involved. Even specialists in the Asian gangs and organized crime units were baffled. Nobody really seemed to know here nor there. Officials even had entertained the possibility that the group didn't even exist at all, that their letters to the media were fake, but they determined that this was a thing that needed to be taken seriously. It was a very real problem. It was the consistency of the letters, the appearance, the style, as well as the few witnesses that they had to the crimes. It appeared more likely than not that the work was of an organized group, an underground group, albeit very real. The group had first made itself known officially on June 4, 1981, when they mailed a letter claiming responsibility for a fire that engulfed a company who transported gifts from immigrants in the United States to Vietnam. The next time they made contact was to claim responsibility for the shooting death of Lam in San Francisco. The letter was received again by a Vietnamese newspaper based in Garden Grove announcing that their group had declared the death penalty against Lam and that the killing had been carried out by a San Francisco-based group member, an unknown young Asian male, wearing a white windbreaker, according to witnesses. And what made this case even more complicated was the fact that another group identifying itself as the anti-communist Viet's organization also claimed responsibility for Lam's assassination, stating in their communique that they were condemning him to death for the odious crimes against the Vietnamese people. Nine months after Lam's killing, there was an arrest made in the case, a young man who became friends with Lam, who also helped him find a job. He was charged, but the day the trial was set to begin, the prosecution dropped all the charges because a key witness flip-flopped about the certainty of his identification of the suspect. The same organization that claimed responsibility for Lam's killing also claimed responsibility for the shooting of a 72-year-old Vietnamese restaurateur along with his wife by, again, a young Asian man who had been hiding behind a tree in front of their home in San Francisco. The restaurateur survived, but his wife did not. He reported that the young man who had shot him and his wife said in their native language, you came home early today, just prior to shooting them. A communique again was sent to a newspaper in Garden Grove, but this time it was postmarked in Las Vegas, Nevada. Calling themselves the party to exterminate communists and restore the nation, it said they punished him with bullets and accused him of collecting foreign currency from Vietnamese refugees and mailing it to the Vietnamese government. It is also believed that the couple had willed their property to the Vietnamese government as well. The group also took responsibility for another shooting death that took place on March 20, 1986, of a former South Vietnamese official in Westminster, California, a city neighboring Garden Grove with a dense Vietnamese-American population as well. To this day, all of these crimes remain unsolved. It's important that I address and provide more information on the front, the anti-communist group Roseanne mentioned earlier. 
The full name of this organization is called the National United Front for the Liberation of Vietnam. This organization was established around the early 80s by Huang Ko Min, who was the first chairman of the Vietnam Reform Party. Huang was born and raised in northern Vietnam, but around the start of the war, he moved down south, joined the army, and fought against the communists. After the war, he fled Vietnam and arrived in the United States with his family. His American sponsor at the time was a war veteran named James Kelly, who later became a national security official under George W. Bush. Despite moving to the U.S., he was still a patriot and he never managed to accept the fate of his country. He would continue to work on plans to rebuild and reform his country, hoping to one day overthrow communism. In the early 80s, Hong built an office base in Thailand where he recruited soldiers. He was making the ultimate plan to take his troops and secretly enter Vietnam through Laos. His plan was carried out in the year 1987, but unfortunately, it failed. His troops were ambushed by communist troops about 20 kilometers away from the Vietnam border, and Huang died on August 28, 1987. So how does this organization tie into the series of murders? Apparently, Huang's ideology and dreams greatly impacted the Vietnamese community. These communities overseas would continue to denounce communism and continue their work for their front. It was also rumored that the front had their own death squad, which they called the K-9 unit. I am fully aware that the unit name K-9 is a little bit odd to give to a people team when it's usually associated with dogs. But I've read that the K here stands for area in Vietnamese, so instead of K-9, it's more Area 9, if that makes any sense. It was a unit made up of war veterans, mostly from the Navy. They shared the same anti-communism ideas, so they were willing to commit murder for the sake of their country. A few ex-front members interviewed have admitted to the existence of this K-9 unit, but everyone refused to give more information or any names. Now that you've heard about the first and third victim, let's now travel back to 1982 and discuss the second victim, Nguyen Dam Phong. He was a journalist and was living in Houston, Texas, with his wife and his sons. He worked a couple different jobs when he first arrived in the United States, but he had a passion for writing, and that motivated him to start his own newspaper, called Tu Do, meaning freedom. Unfortunately, not everyone shared his views and his passion, and it pissed him off. Nguyen was pro-communist and supported the government back in Vietnam. He did not hold back when he wrote about his views, which were not shared by most Vietnamese communities. He constantly questioned the ideologies of the front, and was even said to have had arguments with members from the front just days before his murder. On August 24, 1982, Nguyen was on the phone with his wife when there was a knock on the door. He went to get the door, and over the phone, his wife heard yelling and what sounded like gunshot. The police arrived and found him dead in his house. He suffered seven gunshot wounds. There were no witnesses and no shell casings at the scene. This indicated that it might have been the work of a professional. 
Nguyen Damfong was 44 years old. His friend believes the murder could have been politically motivated, and it was possible the K-9 unit was sent to eliminate his voice. This friend has even warned Nguyen to turn down the volume, as in his voice, because he was making himself way too many enemies. A suspect was approached by the police at the time, a man by the name of Johnny Nguyen. He was brought before the grand jury, but was never charged for anything. Johnny later on denies any involvement with the murder, though he was a member of the front at the time and the huge supporter of their leader, Huang Komin. Johnny Nguyen continues to hold memorial services every single year for his beloved leader. The last victims were two men who both worked for the same Vietnamese language magazine in Virginia, Do Nan Trong and Lei Triet. Do was a layout designer and Lei was a columnist. On November 22, 1989, Do was arriving at his home in Fairfax County, Virginia, and while he was still sitting in his car, someone came up and shot him. As for Lei, he was said to have written controversial material regarding politics. On September 22nd, less than a year later, Lei and his wife were heading back to their home in Bailey's Crossroads, Virginia, after attending a party. Neither one of them made it home. While Lei was parking in his driveway, the killer approached them and shot both him and his wife, possibly five to seven shots total at close range. His colleagues and friends all believed this was a politically motivated murder due to his outspoken nature against the government. They also believe that the communists have spies living amongst their community, constantly watching their every move and reading everything they publish. Yes, the Front was an anti-communist organization, so why would they want to kill Lei if he was supposedly also anti-communist? The thing about Lei is that his writing was never one-sided. He would attack both the communists and the anti-communists, depending on the issue. Lei was very anti-communist because of all the hardship he and his family endured back in Vietnam. Both his father and brother were buried alive by the communist troops, and he was sent to different prison camps when he was only in his teens. In the beginning, he was supportive of the Front and their mission, but eventually he lost faith and started to criticize the Front's ways and their fund allocations. He was allegedly made a hit target since 1982, when his name first popped up on one of Nguyen Dam Fong's documents back in his files in Houston. It was also said that he constantly received threats regarding the material against the front. Even after his assassination, some of his relatives would continue to get threatening phone calls. One source said, quote, He had many, many enemies. Sometimes he attacked from one side and then from another, but always he attacked. He hurt people. A publisher of another Vietnamese paper, the Viet Bao, was also quoted as saying, quote, I worry that one day someone will come into my office and say to me, I don't like your paper, then bang. It's a risky business. People are very emotional over all that has happened. No one was ever charged for the three murders that happened in Virginia. As I mentioned in the beginning, the Public Broadcasting System, or PBS, filmed a documentary called Terror in Little Saigon back in 2015. 
People were interviewed and documents were re-examined. A lot of theories came from this documentary, and again, please take it with a grain of salt. The correspondent for this documentary, a journalist by the name of A.C. Thompson, traveled from California to Houston to Virginia and eventually made his way to the jungles of Thailand where Huang Min's secret army was supposedly based at years ago. Thompson interviewed many family members and friends of victims, talked to a special agent once in charge of these cases, attended a South Vietnamese army reunion in San Jose, California, interviewed many ex-front members or people who seemed to have an idea of what was happening back in the 80s. Not to make this sound like a conspiracy theory, but it was even hinted at one point that all these terroristic actions were allowed in the U.S. and even received support from U.S. government. The front was said to have been raising large sums of money on U.S. soil, which would be used to finance an army that would eventually attack the Vietnamese communist government. Would the U.S. have been on board with this? Would they have let these murders slide in order to achieve a bigger mission? What do you think? Thompson also happened to come across copies of Hong Kong Min's U.S. citizenship application, showing that he had applied under a Japanese name, William Nakamura. The contact person he left on the application was of a man named Richard Armitage, who was once a naval officer and eventually became a high-ranking official in the Pentagon. This all might sound very suspect and shady, and there could also be a completely innocent explanation. Even just a simple coincidence. They could have been friends from the war and kept in touch ever since. Most pages of Huang's application were still redacted, even more than three decades after his death so it was difficult to find out any more information from that file. Like I mentioned earlier, there were so many more victims other than the five journalists we discussed in this episode. In 1989, a man by the name of Don Van Toy was gunned down in front of his Fresno, California home. He was shot in the jaw and his abdomen, but he managed to survive. He was a political affairs commentator and very prominent in his field, but not everyone appreciated his work. After his brush with death, he gave up both writing and public speaking. There were many informants working with the police that were trying to find more information on how the front operated, and many of them ended up dead. One informant had the words, You snitch, you die a snitch, written on his body. This documentary has made a point to remind us of the tragic events that had taken place and to hopefully get new information or find more people who might be willing to shed some light on these murders. On the other hand, though, there have been some negative feedback on this documentary. A woman who was a member of the pro-democracy organization Viet Thanh in the U.S., has written a letter to PBS stating about how the Vietnamese community suffers from misrepresentation and are almost always written by outsiders with support from voices that are frequently one-sided and unvetted. She also explains that the so-called K-9 death squad has never existed and that violence was never used to silence their critics. What are your thoughts? The more you dig through the more voices, opinions, and quote-unquote truth you find.
I personally think it is very unlikely that we will ever find out who was behind these murders. Maybe not anytime soon, at least. The people who committed these crimes did it for a higher cause and for their beliefs. And if they still believe that they are right and that it was a justified cause, there is no reason they will give themselves up unless somebody else knows something and they're willing to talk. Before I conclude this case of unsolved murders, I'd like to again thank Roseanne from the California Dreaming Podcast for her participation and for being so agreeable and efficient. If you're not listening to California Dreaming, what are you even doing? Okay, just kidding, but not really. I appreciate Roseanne so much for giving me her time, and this episode would not have been the same without her. Roseanne will help me conclude this episode by sharing her story and her experience with the Vietnamese American community. Thank you all for tuning in, and till next time. As I mentioned, my mom is an immigrant from Vietnam. She met my dad in 1968 when he was sent there for work, not with the military effort, but for the CIA as a communications expert. The American involvement in South Vietnam brought a lot of jobs for the Vietnamese people, and my mom was one of them. Her two older and one younger brother were drafted into the South Vietnamese Army, and only the youngest one returned alive. Disabled for life, but alive. And this would make my mom the eldest in the family once her two older brothers were killed. She had graduated high school in 1967 and immediately applied for a job at the American Embassy in Saigon. And this is where she met my dad, who was much older than her at the time, but he was divorced. They worked together there until 1973 when my dad's contract was up and they came back to the United States together before the war ended. The plan was to eventually bring her parents, her remaining siblings, and as many cousins as she could to the United States. And my dad was committed to helping her make that happen. But once the communist regime gained control over South Vietnam in 1975, my grandfather lost everything he had earned in life. He was a banker, and they took control of the banks and he lost his job. They took any money he had deposited, and they took the family home. By the late 1970s, my parents were able to send $16,000 to her family, 2000 for each of them to get out of the country by boat and head to the Philippines where they could fly to the United States. Unfortunately, my grandfather died in 1979 and my grandmother in 1980 before they were ever able to make it out. So my mom's two youngest siblings, who were still under the age of 18, were able to come right away. And five years later, in 1985, the remaining three escaped by boat to the Philippines, and my parents were able to help them make it the rest of the way to the United States. However, not all of my mom's relatives were given entry into the country. Some of her cousins wound up in Canada and some in Sweden. And the reason is because of their family ties to the North Vietnamese government or military. And because of that, not all of them were allowed to immigrate here, ending up in other countries with more lax rules and conditions. 
Today, the Vietnamese community and culture are strong in Orange County, California. It is very, very rare that you see any type of pro-communism in the community. The Vietnamese newspapers and television shows are clustered on this one little street in the middle of Little Saigon. And if there are any communist-supporting publications, they are definitely underground. You cannot openly display support for communism anywhere in Little Saigon or pretty much anywhere in California. Every business, every shop, every home flies the old South Vietnamese flag, the yellow with the three red stripes. If you try to display the communist red flag, you are likely setting yourself up to be a target of attacks or your business will be boycotted. As a matter of fact, the city council voted in Garden Grove as well as in San Jose in 2017 to ban the displaying of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam flag, period. So even if you wanted to, you'd face a fine if you do. The support of communism by the Vietnamese American community is a very sore spot for those who came here to escape it. So, in spite of the violent nature in which these pro-communist journalists were assassinated, one can only infer that remaining silent if any knowledge of the crimes or the groups were to be had was the most honorable thing to do. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time. <laughs>